Today in your Bible, the book of Romans, chapter 3. Romans, chapter 3. Now, this morning, the subject is the state of mankind. The state of mankind, the nature of man. Would you please stand with me? We go to chapter 3. I've been now, this is the 23rd message, I think, on the book of Romans. And we've gone down through chapter 2 pretty thoroughly. I am not going to deal with verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3 because I've already dealt with them in principle in the messages on chapter 2 since they are the same subject matter. In fact, and remember the chapter headings are not by inspiration of God. They were put there by man. And I believe with a lot of other people that maybe chapter 2 should have gone down through verse 8 of chapter 3 and chapter 3 would have begun here But at any rate, since I didn't do it, we'll just accept it as it is, huh? But we're in Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What then, question, are we better than they, the they being the religious Jews at the time of Paul? Are we better than they? And no, in no wise, in no way are we better than them. For we have before proved, that's chapter 1 and chapter 2 where he's been proving his case. We have before proved that both Jews and Gentiles, they are all under sin. Now, I could name the message today that, under sin, those two words. So you may want to underscore those, under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. No exception. Their throat is an open sepulcher or grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp, that's a cobra, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, to be violent. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, It saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped or shut and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested witnessed by the law and the prophets. And skip to verse 23. That's the summary verse for this section. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Heavenly Father, will you fill me with your Holy Spirit as I seek to preach your word. And Lord, above all, that I may please you. And one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.
and you may be seated. Two or three times before I've mentioned to you that Paul is here the prosecutor. He is prosecuting the case against the whole world. And so he brings the whole world, the population, all of mankind before the court, the court of God's justice, before God Almighty's bar of justice. He brings the Jews before God's bar of justice, and then he brings the Gentiles before that bar of justice. And he proves one thing for all of them, that the whole world, the entire world is guilty before Almighty God. Now, he deals with two representative classes of people here. And it's really important. Over and over and over, he's been talking about both the Jew and the Gentile, the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew and the Gentile, always the Jew first, because the Bible says that the gospel was to go first to the Jew. So the Jew and the Gentile, they are representative classes of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. You should know when you read the word Jew in the New Testament, it, it doesn't just mean the people who were born of the house of Israel, but it has a deeper meaning, and the meaning is that the Jew represented the person who had the oracles of God, who had the Bible, who had the prophets, who even was given the Messiah. Jesus Christ came to the Jews first of all. And so the Jew represents that person who knows the truth of God, who has the Bible, who has heard the gospel in today's world, the person who is familiar with the Holy Scriptures. And in chapter 2, he deals with the Jew. In chapter 1, he deals with the Gentiles, and that's a representative class of people as well. The Gentile, in Paul's writing here, represents the people who are secularist, we would say today. They are people who don't have the Scripture, or if they do have them, are not aware of them. They are the people who don't know anything about God. They may be involved in some paganistic religion, or they may be an atheist or an infidel and not familiar or care about any religion. They're the people totally outside of salvation and Christianity and even a knowledge of Christianity. And so he's dealing with these two classes of people. He's been dealing with them all the way through chapter 1, the pagan world, the barbarians, in chapter 2, he deals with the Jewish world, the world of religiosity, the world of Scripture, and the world of people who knew the truth of God and still were rejecting it. We come to chapter 3 now. He deals with everybody. From now on in the book of Romans, he's dealing with everybody. You could say as you read the book of Romans, he's dealing with me. That was written for me. And you won't benefit from it like you should, unless you are willing to accept it as being for you. So now, he has charged them with all of this, and he issues his indictment to continue with the court illustration. Paul is the prosecuting attorney, and he brings the Jews and the Gentiles representing the two classes of humanity up before the bar of God, and he says, you're guilty, and here are the charges. Here's the indictment that I'm going to bring against you, and it's a universal indictment. It's for every 
single person. Go with me to point number one, the state or condition of all mankind. Verse number nine, the state or the condition of all mankind. And I want you to notice that little phrase. I've already called your attention to it. If you have your Bible, mark it there. We are all, we are under sin. We're under sin. Please mark that. What does that word under mean there? Under has to do with influence. I'm under the influence of someone or something. And Paul says we're all under the influence. We're under sin. We're under its influence. Put another way, we're under its control. It has, sin has power over all of us, Jew and Gentile, religious and secular. Under sin has the idea of sin dominating us. In every respect, in our thinking, in our actions, in our worldview, in our philosophy of life, we're under sin. And in the Bible, there are only two conditions of mankind. We're either under sin or we're under grace. Everybody here this morning, you're under sin or you're under grace. If you have been saved and you know the gospel of Christ and you've received it, you're under grace. If you are outside the gospel of Christ, you are under sin. Now, it's a general statement here he's making. When he makes that statement, we're all under sin. He's talking about the whole world. So whatever he's saying has to fit everybody. So he's not talking about some specific sin here yet. He's talking in a general way. He's speaking about the very nature of man the state or the condition that we all find ourselves in. We are under sin, to use Paul's terminology. Why is this important that people get a hold of this? Because Paul, we can never understand the importance of the gospel of Christ until we first understand that we have a great, great need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe today that's the missing note in American Christianity. People don't sense any desperation for the gospel of Christ. They're pretty content like they are to live in their sins and to be what they are. There's not much real concern about their relationship with God. They just kind of assume that everything is all right. Listen to me. We can never understand why it was necessary for Jesus Christ to come into the world and to die the horrible death that he died until we get it down clearly in our minds as to our need and till we understand the fall of man and the condition that we are in. You see, the first man, Adam, was made in the image of God, had the image of God literally stamped upon him. And then this man, Adam, and his wife, Eve, were representative of all of his descendants down through time. I was in Adam, the Bible says. You were in Adam, meaning Adam was our representative man, the first man, the representative of all of humankind as he stood there with Eve, his wife, that day. And all of us were potentially, all of his descendants, his progeny, were in Adam's loins, Paul uses that term. Just like we elect somebody to be a representative 
a congressman, and he goes to Washington, and he represents all the people in the 7th District of South Carolina. And when Tom Rice, our congressman, makes a vote up there, he is voting for all of us. He's voting for Bill Monroe. He's voting for you. He is the representative man of this district of South Carolina. And when Adam that day voted to please himself rather than to obey God's instruction to him, he voted for you and he voted for me, and he voted for every human being who would ever, who would ever exist. He was the representative man of all, of all men. And that day, he made a conscious, willful choice, a conscious, willful choice, knowing the consequences of his choice when he disobeyed the Lord and took the fruit of that tree. And it's the most devastating thing that ever happened. More than the nuclear bomb more than any famine, more than any tsunami, more than any war, more than any disease, the most devastating thing that ever happened is Adam brought all of us under sin, out from under God's dominion and under the dominion of sin and, the, and, and Satan. And that's our condition today. And Paul has spent three chapters now, and I've worked my way slowly through this whole area of Scripture because I won't live long enough to come back and preach the book of Romans like this again. And I want you to get this. This is the foundation of Christianity. This is the fundamental of the fundamentals. If you miss this, you can miss it all. You must get this, that Paul says the whole world is under sin and the whole world is guilty before God's bar of justice. And he spends three whole chapters describing the condition of man. And chapter, at the end of this chapter, we're going to go on to the solution. We're going to go on to something else. But right now, he's digging in. He is convincing people of their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I've seen a change in today's evangelism from the evangelism we started with when I began my ministry. I see a big change. I look at evangelism programs. I study evangelism because every day I'm trying to do evangelism. Every week I'm out evangelizing, if it were, as it were. And here's what I've noticed. We've changed the whole thing. We used to start off with Romans 3.10 in our evangelism. We used to start off with Romans 3.23. All have sinned. There's none righteous, no, not one. And we would make a convincing case of people that they were sinful and they needed the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, today, we start off like this. Would you like to be happy? Paul doesn't start off with happy talk. <laughs> he starts off with pretty heavy talk, doesn't he? Now, you know what? People are attracted to the happy talk. I'm going to tell you tonight how you can be a better you. And people like that. That attracts the flesh. But Paul doesn't talk about how to be happy in these chapters because people will look at the gospel as being something very, very superficial until they decide, hey, this is the only hope I've got. So he gets them deeply under conviction of their sin before he moves on. Today we say, are you lonely? Oh, Jesus will be the best friend you ever had. 
And people say, I don't need a friend. I'm too busy for friends right now. God has a wonderful plan for your life. We start our evangelism with. Oh, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And you know what people say? I already got my own plans, Rev. I'm not interested. I'm not interested in God's plan for my life. I got my own plan. I'll tell you what, come see me when I'm in the intensive care unit and about ready to curl up my toes and they're going to pull the sheet up and send me down to Studemeyer's and tell me then I'll be interested in God's plan. But right now, I've got a lot of plans. And you see, we never really grapple with the real issues. Oh, yes. I think there is happiness to be found in Jesus Christ. I think Jesus Christ will be your best friend. I think God does have a wonderful, wonderful plan for your life. But that's not the starting point of evangelism. The starting point of evangelism is we're under sin. That's our condition. I'm not talking about a specific sin even. I'm not talking about going out and say, oh, you're an adulterer. You're a liar. You're, uh-uh. I'm talking about what we are, not what we do. Please understand me today. And then Paul begins point number two to deal with the universality of sin. And he just bangs away at certain words here, none and all. And he goes over them and over them and over them. Now, this is the classic passage in all the Bible. You should mark this in your Bible because if you ever get into a discussion with people about our condition, the condition of humanity, why we're so cruel, why there are the wars, why there's the hatred, why there's the strife, why we're so selfish, and all the kind of symptoms we see of our condition. If you ever need to talk to someone in a discussion, you can draw them back to Romans 3, and beginning in verse 9, going through verse 23, in which Paul is showing that sin is the universal problem. It's the same problem for the white man, the black man, the yellow man, the red man. It's the same problem for the rich man and the poor man. It's the problem for the old man and the young man. It is the universal malady of mankind, this issue of sin. And no other passage in the Bible makes such a strong case. Now, I know. I talk to people all the time, and I get up and say this, and in my mind, boy, I've made my point. But then you know what? I talk to somebody over a cup of coffee, and it's like they have their own private opinion of what sin is. May I tell you lovingly and respectfully, it doesn't matter what you think sin is. It doesn't matter one bit what you think sin is. Sin is what the Scripture defines sin as being. And your private opinion is, is absolutely just an opinion. That's all it is, my friend. Up until you and I accept the fact that we are under sin, that that brother that's lost is under sin, that that friend that needs Christ is under sin, groaning from the weight of his or her sins, until we get there, well, then, until that person gets there, they're not ready for grace. I'm spending my life talking to people. Sometimes I feel that I'm telling them how wonderful Christ is and the gospel is. And they're not, they're not moved by that because they're not ready for grace. They don't even think they have a need for grace. 
I say this to you in all love. If you can read verses 9 through 20, if you can read that and not feel your need of God and Christ's saving power, blindness has already set in in your life. Blindness, spiritual blindness has already set in like rigor mortis in a dead man. I know people don't like to be told. People don't like preaching like this. You know, I'm, I'm getting a lot of response from the television audience who watches our program. And you know what they tell me? They're very encouraging for the most part, the people who write the letters, the people who I don't want to hear their comments are not writing, thankfully, because they may not like it. But people say, I'm so glad you're preaching on that. I haven't heard that since I was a boy. All I hear is feel-good stuff. Thank you for telling me what the Bible says about my condition, Pastor. People don't like to be told there's something wrong with them. Sin brings guilt. So somebody says to me, Pastor, you're just putting us on a guilt trip. Read my lips. You don't just feel guilty, you are. (laughs) I can't make an innocent man feel guilty. Come on. You know what guilt is? It's the work of that conscience that God put within us. And when I sin, and nobody else in the whole world knows, I do. And the Holy Spirit comes and works through my conscience and says, Wrong, Bill, wrong. And the Holy Spirit. Look, I'm not trying to put people on a guilt trip. That doesn't work. I've surely found that out. But I know this, that guilt is a God-given emotion. And it's merely a symbol, or pardon me, a symptom. It's, it's a symptom of the real problem that I have. And so when I feel guilty, I search my heart and I say, wait a minute. Why do I feel guilty? There must be something producing this guilt down inside me. So Paul here then delivers this indictment. He does it with seven statements about God, or or pardon me, about man without God. He makes seven statements about the condition of men without God. Mark them in your Bible with me and make them stand out. Verse number 10, he says, there's none righteous. None righteous. Now, The word righteous there is arguably the most important word here in the book of Romans because it's the theme of Romans. The theme of Romans is righteousness. How can an unrighteous person meet the requirements of a righteous God? That's that's what the book of Romans is about. And so the first thing right out of the gate, he says there's none righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? How would you define the word righteous? Righteous, let me give you a definition, is to be right. (laughs) Real hard, isn't it? It's to be right with God and it's to be right with man. In fact, righteousness comes from a word that means upright or it means straight. Oh, you, you can just put right there in your Bible, there's none righteous upright or straight. It got me thinking, how do I illustrate that to people so that they'll really 
follow me through this. Because it means more than just being a good person. It means more than being a moral person or a respectable person among the members of society. It means that in relationship to God, I'm in conformity to his will. And he defines what is righteous, what is straight, what is upright. So yesterday I went shopping to the hardware store. The only place I like to shop is a hardware store. Got everything. And I said, do you all have a plumb bob? I figured maybe now we didn't even have plumb bobs anymore because we got lasers and all this high-tech stuff. But I began to read up on it. They said, no. In fact, a plumb bob is still the best thing of all. You know what a plumb bob is, don't you? How many of y'all know Bob? Okay. And I read on the package, and it, it was pretty good. You know what it said? A plumb bob measures true vertical. True vertical. Using the law of gravity, that piece of lead and metal down there at the end on this string tells me that something is absolutely straight. Now, remember, the definition of righteousness is what? I just told you. Do you want me to start all over and preach this again to you? You talk to me. You answer me, class, when I ask you a question. Come on. What's the definition of righteousness? One word. Right. What's the second word I said? Straight. Third word, upright. So I got this thing. This thing will drive you nuts if you start playing with it. I've been walking around measuring door frames. I took that over to my door. Let's see if this thing here is straight, you know? And so I was putting it up against the door like this. I have yet to find a door in this building that's straight. I measured the bookcase in my office over there a few minutes ago. And from about this point right here where I could get it under the lip of it so it wouldn't interfere with it, you know, I held it right there. And my bookcase is off this far from this high to the floor. Ain't nothing straight in this whole world if you put a plumb bob on it, right? Very little, very little straight. And you know what? You can look at something and you could say, for example, the pulpit is straight, absolute pure vertical. You put the plumb bob on it and you may find that it's off just a little bit. What is my point? The best person in the, you've ever seen from the outside, they look straight. But when you put God's plumb bob, his word, his definition of righteousness on their life, we're all a little off. Some of us are off this much. Some of us are. <laughs> but we have missed God's standard. We're not righteous. We're not straight according to the plumb bob of God's Word. That's what Paul's saying here. None are righteous. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great preacher, said, righteousness is man and woman as he or she should be. Verse 11, notice, there are none that understand. He's describing our condition. He means that don't understand spiritually. Oh, we're We've got brilliant people. We've got people who can put a man on the moon. 
We got people who can take out a heart and replace it. We got people who can do all kinds of wonderful things technologically. We can do everything but break into an Apple phone. We have got some brilliant people in our, in our country and in our society today. Very, very intellectually acute. But you know what? We don't understand spiritual truth. And we can be brilliant on the SAT test, and we can fail God's test. 1 Corinthians 2 and 14, there is, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 2 and 14, the natural man receiveth not, understandeth not the things of the Spirit. We're not talking about a person's thinking capacity and their intellect. Paul isn't referring to that when he said none understand. He's talking about the understanding that only comes with the Spirit of God in our life. Verse number 11, the second part of the verse, he said, nobody seeks after God. There are none, no exception, that seek after God. No one is going to search for God until the Holy Spirit convicts them and directs them and draws them. I hear people talking about, I'm seeking for God. If you can honestly and sincerely say, I'm seeking for God, get on your knees and thank the Lord that he's speaking to you because were it not for the Holy Spirit's work, you wouldn't be seeking for God. You'd have no appetite for him or for the things of the Lord. The Bible is full of what I call a search theology. And throughout the Bible, we always find God coming and searching for man. We don't find man searching for God. Read your Bible. Think about your Bible. Luke 15, a shepherd goes out seeking for that one lost sheep and leaves the 99 in the fold to look, to search for that one. A woman has 10 pieces of silver. One of them falls and drops under the furniture, and she takes a candle and lights it, and she goes and looks. She's not worried about the nine. She want, she's searching for the tenth. It tells this parable of a young boy, the prodigal son, we call him, and he leaves, and he goes into a far country. All the way through the Scripture, we're talking about a search theology. Adam and Eve sinned, and what did they do? They hid themselves after spending time with God every day. Why did they hide themselves? Conscience. Conscience that makes cowards of us all, said Shakespeare. And who is it that's trying to mend that relationship? Adam and Eve are not going looking for God. They're hiding. God comes down to the garden searching for them. A search theology, a theme of God searching for man all through the Scripture. Look in verse 12, and all are going out of the way. The way meaning God's way, meaning the way of righteousness. Isaiah 53 and 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. All of us have gone out of the way. And I think of the great old hymn that I love so much. I've wandered far away from God, but now I'm coming home.
That's what the verse is talking about. When Paul says, all have gone out of the way, we've wandered far from God, but he's going to give us the way back. Chapter, or pardon me, verse 12 and the second part of it. There's none that doeth good. There's none that doeth good. You say, well, I'm a good person, or I know a good person. Pastor, aren't you a good person? According to God's standard, according to God's plumb line, we're all off. None of us are straight, absolute, vertical. We've all, we are all a little bit crooked, <laughs> if you want to put it like that. My favorite kind of cake is pound cake. I thought I'd throw that in just in case somebody wanted to know. Pound cake. And so my wife decides one day she's going to cook me a pound cake. And we need six eggs, she says, for that pound cake. So she pulls six eggs out, cracks them, puts them in there with the flour and the butter and all the good stuff. Five good eggs, and one of them is rotten. She says, Bill's not here to go to the store. I don't think it's that rotten. I don't think he'll know the difference. And she puts one rotten egg in with the other five. Do you want to come over and have pound cake with me? I mean, five good eggs and one rotten one? Come on. That's about as good as anybody I know. Five good eggs for every one bad one? You say, no. You see, here's the point. Even our good becomes contaminated because of our selfish motives and because of what we are. And the best man, the best woman, put the plumb line on them, a little bit off. You get to verse 13 through 17. I don't have time to go through all of them. There's a list of specific sins there. He, he quotes Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Isaiah 59. In verse 13 and 14, he talks about our speech, our throat, what comes out of it, and he compares it to a grave. He talks about our tongue biting people like the poison of a cobra. He talks about our lips. He talks about our mouth. Just stop and think about the things you say to people and I say to people and how we say them and the motive and then the intent. And then in verse 15, 16, he talks about our feet, which is a way of talking about our actions. And he says, they lead to misery and they lead to destruction and the feet lead to violence. All of the sins that we see around us and that we in some ways ourselves participate. In verse 17, he talks about the lack of peace that the wicked have, that there's a restlessness, that the human heart is restless. It was made for God, and until God occupies the throne of the human heart, that there is a restlessness that we feel, a lack of peace. And he concludes in Romans chapter 3 and verse number 23. The conclusion, the whole world's guilty. All have sinned, I have sinned, my wife has sinned, my children have sinned, my grandchildren are sinners, you've sinned. The best and the worst among us, we've sinned. One of my preaching heroes you probably never heard of. He was a medical doctor trained in England 
And he went to work in one of the best hospitals in England during World War II. Practiced medicine for two or three years. But God had laid upon his heart a burden to preach the gospel. He spent every free moment that he had studying the Word of God. He never went to seminary. He just studied God's Word. His name was Martin Lloyd, or Dash Jones, the English two two names for the the second name, Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I have a number of his books, and I read them avidly, and I study them because his style of preaching is what I'm doing right here. He just took the Bible and went down through the text and taught the people the Word of God. Oh, what a great saint of God. And about this passage, he says this, and I, I don't like to read to people long passages uh, for two or three minutes, but it would be well worth your time to give me good heed and listen to me because this is so true, so profound. He said, the preacher never needs to know the individual facts about the congregation. It does not make any difference to the preacher who may be sitting before him. He does not need to know. He should not even be interested. Why? Well, because he knows that every single human being is not righteous. And it really does not matter from the standpoint of the preacher whether they have just emerged out of a gutter or whether they have come out of the best appointed drawing room in London. It does not matter whether they've come from the West End or the East End, the North Pole or the South. What does it matter? It doesn't matter how they're dressed, what they look like, how respectable or disreputable they are. Nothing like that matters. They're souls. They're people. And therefore, they are not righteous, and they need the gospel because it's the only thing that can save them. What powerful words. And when they come to see the preacher at the end, And they begin to give a catalog. He means the end of the service. And someone comes up and begins to give a catalog of their sins. The preacher who really knows his Bible should say, stop. I do not mind what you have done or what you have said or what you have been. You are just a sinner like everybody else, myself included, and you need the same Savior. So we're not interested in people getting up and giving us testimonies as to what they were once. It doesn't matter. There's nothing more marvelous about one person being saved than another. There's nothing more marvelous about a man who's been a terrible drunkard being saved than a man who never drank a drop in his life. If you press me, I would say it's much more difficult to save the person who's not been a drunkard. Because he does not know that he's not righteous. The drunkard knows that he's terribly aware of it, poor fellow. How important that we go quietly and slowly and carefully through these scriptures in Romans and observe these profound statements. It is the absence of righteousness that puts every human under sin and under the law and under the wrath of God, not what they've done. My, what word? What words? I hope you feel it because this is the beginning point of salvation in preaching the gospel. 
People don't eat until they're hungry. People don't want to drink a water until they're thirsty. I can put a pitcher of water, clean, pure, and cold up on the counter. It can sit there all day until somebody thirsts. People don't eat till they're hungry. They don't drink till they're thirsty. They don't take medicine. They shouldn't until they know they're sick. And then they'll do everything they can to get to the drugstore and get it. And people don't desire the gospel until they feel their lostness. Until they feel their lostness. Monday night, I had this meet the pastor thing, and we had 23 people come, and several people trusted Christ. The man came up to me after the service, and he said, Mike Coker has worked with me for 17 years. He's been my friend trying to get me to receive Christ. I wasn't ready. Clayton Simmons came to my house a year ago and went over the plan of salvation and talked to me for an hour. He said, I felt sorry for poor Clayton. He was trying so hard, but I wasn't ready. He said, God's been speaking to me. I'm ready. You can lead the horse to the water. You can't make him drink. You can't force salvation down anybody's throat and it'd be effective. But boy, when they see their state, their condition, we're not righteous. We're under sin. We've come short. Those are his words. Then you want to sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You want to sing just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Will you bow your head with me?